1: I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to The Tom Sumner Show.
2: Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. we got a great one in store uh, for today. Um, coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with Aaron Barnhart. He is the... Uh, senior editor for Prime Timer, and he has a new book, The Prime Timer Guide to Streaming TV. just came out this month. We'll talk with uh, Aaron about that. And then in the middle of our three-hour tour, the second hour of the show, I'll be featuring uh, author Elliot Schrieffer, um, who has a new book, and, and you won't believe this. It uh, looks at the queer behavior in animals. It's called Queer Ducks and Other Animals, and we'll be talking about that with uh, two-time National Book Award finalist and New York Times best-selling author, Elliot Schrieffer. But first, we're going to talk to uh, an author who has a uh, new book. It's um, called Hooker Avenue, and it's a little similar to her previous book, The Midnight Call, in that... Uh, it too is a serial killer thriller, a yeah, true crime mystery, and has some connection to the author herself. And I, you know, you might you might wonder a little bit about a serial killer crossing an author's path once, but twice is <laughs> a little hard to believe. And we're going to find out what that's all about. With the uh, author of Hooker Avenue, who joins me now by phone, Jody Millman. Jody, good morning and welcome to the show.
3: Hi, Tom. Happy to be here.
2: Just how rough is your neighborhood?
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's not as rough as my neighborhood when I lived in Dexter, Michigan, I can tell you that. Hey, there you go. <laughs>
2: I, I don't doubt uh, you that.
3: You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, a Poughkeepsie is a very idyllic place. We're halfway between New York City and Albany. And, but it does have, uh, the, the entire Hudson Valley has a dark underbelly for some reason. And it's my job as a novelist to reveal those mysteries through my, my Queen City crime series.
2: But it's a lot easier if serial killers just kind of show up on your doorstep. Uh, yeah, that was very easy. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but, but let's, but but for the for the listeners, let's put this in context a little bit. You do in fact have a personal connection to both of the serial killers that you have uh, uh, featured in in your two novels. The the first one being. Um, Let's see. I've got it here: uh, the Midnight Call, and the new one, of course, Hooker Avenue, and and the first one. It, it was one of your teachers turned out to be a killer.
3: Yeah, he was. He wasn't a serial killer. He was. He was actually one of the best teachers I can tell you I ever had he taught world history uh, ninth grade in junior high school and whenever we when we did world history for example we, we when we were studying India um, he choreographed a huge Indian dinner and we would dress up and you know if we're studying um, China he came and dressed like Genghis Khan if we were doing American history he came like Robert E Lee I mean this is a guy who was really dedicated to his students And then that was in the late 60s. When I returned home from law school in 1978, I opened up our local paper, and his picture was on the cover. The headline was, um, Teacher Accused of Murdering Teen. And he had, had, you know, I guess he'd had a psychotic break, and he really uh, uh, murdered a child who was trespassing through his yard. It was a horrible story because he had taught so many of us Everybody loved him, and everyone had confidence in him being you know a great guy and a wonderful educator
2: and, and you know what's what's interesting about that story and I was reading a little bit about it jody and and I couldn't help thinking all of those times watching uh, CNN or ABC nightly News and seeing some horrible event a a uh, uh, murder-suicide, a mass shooting at a school like we've seen recently. And there's always that interview with somebody's neighbor that says, Oh, they were great. They always mowed the lawn, waved when they came by, you know. Never would have suspected a thing. And it sounds like that's this guy.
3: That That is this guy. And he, as I said, his parents had... Such confidence in him that they allowed him to take their kids to Russia on a school break, uh, you know, like in the spring of our of our uh, of our freshman year of high school. So I mean, he was really a guy that parents trusted, and you never would have thought in a, in a zillion years that he would be capable of butchering kids. And the interesting thing is that he was ultimately acquitted of the crime because he was found um, mentally unable to stand trial and he was institutionalized. And to this day he's institutionalized in the state run psychiatric center um, in the Hudson Valley. So, I mean, it's, unfortunately, he's a guy that got away with murder. Literally, he got away with murder.
2: Uh, Jody um, with a story like that, when you, you know, open up the paper and, and, there's a teacher I had that everybody loved and you know he's on trial for murder. And you decide you're gonna write that up in in a book, a novel format, how do you how do you treat it? It do you treat it as as a a, a mystery? Uh oh. Whoop! <laughs> Hey, welcome back, everybody. <laughs> well, this is the that's not good. And my uh, my guest this hour just recently uh, Here, let entered let me the mix. Well,
3: oh, I, lo- I
2: love automation.
3: Oh, absolutely, it's got a mind of its own.
2: Why was that still in there? Must have been left over from yesterday. Anyway, um, or yeah, I guess it was left over from yesterday. In any event, let's uh, let's get back to that. How do you, do you treat it as a as a, a murder mystery? Do you treat it as a, a courtroom drama? How how do you how do you take that story and and tell it in a way that's um, interesting and and um, dare I say entertaining in a novel format?
3: Well, what I do is I first of all. I start with the, st- the only thing I really take is that idea, the idea of, for example, in The Midnight Call, um, a teacher murdering a student. And in Hooker Avenue, the cold cases and the disappearances of eight prostitutes. And I take that and I've created a cast of characters and I, I, I treat it, what if? What if my characters had to deal with this particular situation? So, for example, in um, the Midnight Call, I had it set up that my protagonist Jesse Martin receives a call in the middle of the night from her teacher who admits to her, "Hey, I've just killed someone. I need your help." That is how the story starts, and that's how I involve my characters in this underlying you know plot that goes on. in in Hooker Avenue, Jessie returns because it's a series, and she's driving down the road, and she spies a woman. It's in a storm. It's a thunderstorm. She pulls over to the side of the road uh, because she's upset by a phone call she's received. She sees something that she believes might be a person lying in a culvert. So I take that, and she goes over, and this mysterious woman who turns out to be a prostitute who's escaped from the clutches of an attacker... That's what starts Jesse and my characters in this second book. So it's really, you know, once I have this, this concept of the crime, what I do is I said I insert my characters in it and I let them tell the story from different perspectives. I always have three points of view so that you're getting it from Jesse's point of view um, in, in Hooker Avenue, a detective point of view and the district attorney's point of view, so you're getting a 360 degree view of the crime.
2: So this is um, these two books are part of a series. Do you have any idea um, how long does Jesse have until retirement?
3: <laughs> oh, she she's not retiring for a long time. <laughs> no, do you expect
2: it to be an ongoing series, or is it a trilogy or four books, five books? Do, do you have any sense for that yet, or it depends? Um, how, how many more serial killers are going to present themselves to you?
3: Well, you know, it's not only <laughs> about murder. <laughs> you know, there are other crimes. This next crime that I'm working on, the book is called The Empty Kayak. And what happens is we transfer from the land onto a disappearance that occurs in the mysterious and murky waters of the Hudson River. So you mm-hmm. see, I'm shifting from the land to, you know, uh, a potential disappearance and drowning. I'm also looking, the next one after that might be an arson case, um, a mysterious arson case of a very interesting house, so uh, which has very interesting occupants. So you know it's not just about murder, and you know I want you know and, that's and interesting also
2: a, that that would be and do you expect it to stay focused on a single house, or is that likely to turn into a serial arsonist
3: no it's a single it's a single house, and it's 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 a really and this is just something that's in the back of my mind um there's a group in Poughkeepsie that um i don't know how to put this they it's they call themselves the church of the devil and they it's a i guess an international organization and they're involved with devil worship and one of the homes of one of their owners was mysteriously burned to the ground and the person who lived there was a um a former porn star so, I mean, there are all these, like, really wild things that were going on in this house. So the question is, was it an intentional murder, an uh, arson? Why did this house burn down? I mean, that's that's really in the developmental stages, the one with the kayak I'm actually working on. And that's, that's based upon a fairly uh, notorious crime that happened here in the Hudson Valley.
2: Yeah, the, the supernatural and cultural implications of the arson story. I can't wait for that one, although the kayak story sounds uh, interesting as well. Um, but I don't want to dwell on those. I, I, I want to stay with these uh, that sure. are already out. The that ones people, that are written,
3: right? Yeah, the the <laughs> ones that,
2: that people can see, although it's, it's nice to know that you have more coming and that these are... Uh, Part of a series, and and that there's a character that we're going to fall in love with and be able to follow the continued adventures and exploits. Um, is is there a cast of characters that we follow from book to book, or is it primarily uh, revolve around Jesse?
3: Well, it revolves around Jesse. She is the core and the heart of the series. But in this partic- in Hooker Avenue, I've introduced her a strange best friend a detective named ebony jones who is the only woman detective on the force one of five women and uh one of the few minorities on the police force and she and jesse have been at odds since um the midnight call she was she was she made a cameo in the midnight call but she really takes the reins because she believes that there are uh, a series of cold cases that have happened throughout the Hudson Valley over a period of two years that have involved missing prostitutes and drug addicts, and no one has given them attention and She is the one who literally connects the dots between these cold cases, especially when after Lissy finds this woman who's been attacked in the culvert, so she, it's her job to convince Jesse. To bring forth this mysterious woman, because Jesse is now representing her as an attorney, and you see this tension arise between these two former best friends, professionally, personally, and ethically. They find themselves in you know pretty much in loggerheads. I want and to talk. A,
2: I, 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 I want to, to dig in a little bit to how this second book came about. And, and your personal connection to it but I have to take a short break here Jody can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more
3: absolutely All right. Sure.
2: my guest is Jody Millman she is the uh, author of Hooker Avenue and we're going to let our broadcast partner squeeze there a few words in we'll be tigger, right back that spells and don't forget to
3: remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy woohoo <laughs>
2: Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with the author of uh, a new true crime mystery, uh, a serial killer thriller, if you will, called Hooker Avenue, by my guest this morning, Jody Millman. And, Jody, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that.
3: Oh, no, it's interesting to listen to those spots. I enjoyed it.
2: (laughs) Um. We were talking just before the break, and and I apologize. I had to cut you off because we had the break coming, and you were about to to make a third point. And we were talking about um, about the characters in your books being a series, and whether or not there was a cast of characters or they revolved around Jesse. And you were saying, um, you know, that that she did have a. Uh, uh, run in with uh, another detective in the first book and and that detective plays a more significant role in this uh, new book, Hooker Avenue, and you were about to make a third point about something.
3: Yeah, we have another a third character who, who also is very important in the book and that is District Attorney Hal Samuels. He was the ADA, the Assistant District Attorney in uh, The Midnight Call, but he's now the District Attorney. And he is the one who was in charge of major felony crimes during this period where these women were disappearing. So you see, he is also Jesse's love interest. So you see him uh, really uh, having a, a pretty much a, cr- a crisis, conf- a, uh, uh, what would you call it? Crisis a, um, of
2: confidence.
3: Crisis of confidence because um, it, all of this happened under his watch. So... He is the one who must be convinced by Detective Jones and Ebony that there is something afoul and that something should be done to investigate these, uh, these missing person cold cases. So he's my third character who will also remain in the series as we go forward.
2: Now, I, we were talking in the last segment about how these particular stories, um, sort of connected to you uh the first one was a homicide uh committed by someone you'd had as a school teacher and that became you know the the model for your first and uh, i don't know if it was your first book but the first in this mm-hmm. series um the uh and I keep losing the title, the Midnight Call.
3: The Midnight Call, right?
2: Yeah, and and then I, I was curious about how the the Hooker Avenue book presented itself to you because um, it's it's based on a true story, and it's something that that again happened in a way that was very close to you. And how did it get the name Hooker Avenue?
3: Well, let's start with um, how it literally fell on the doorsteps of my law office. And in 1995, my business partner and I purchased a building. And it had been vacant for a while, and, it be- and we didn't know it, but it was a hangout for prostitutes because they would, they would sit on our front porch, <clears throat> and then across the street was an abandoned garage where they would do their thing. So we kept calling the police because they, these women, we would literally have to say to them, please, I have to get in the building. Could you get off the steps uh, to get inside? And we would call the police and ask the police to please move the girls along. And again, the police were not very helpful, unfortunately. But there came a period of time where the girls started to disappear, or should I say the problem started to disappear. Then on September 1st, 1998, all hell broke loose, because we discovered that a serial killer had been stopping by our office in that general vicinity, soliciting the girls, taking them back to his house, having sex with them, and then killing them. So, I mean, literally, our office was the beginning of the scene of the crime. Um, So that was something that, that, okay, I mean, you know, as a writer, this is not something that happens to you every day. So I kind of You know, kept it on the back burner again in the back of my mind. And then once, actually, I I crossed paths three times with this particular case. Because on a Saturday after the case blew up, I was in the car with with my young sons and my father. We were coming back from the market, and we couldn't get to our house because all of the streets were cordoned off and there was media all over the place. And it turned out that the serial killer lived three blocks from our house. I mean, it was, again, one of these situations. He was a chameleon-like guy who fit into the community. He was a hall monitor at one of the the high schools. Um, He was, you know, I knew his dentist. I knew people that went to community college with him. I just met someone that worked with his mother. I mean. These are were, were people who were integrated into the community. So that was number two, to find out that this killer was so close in proximity to where I lived. The third time, and this was something that, because, I, because the case was in the news all the time, and it, we were just bombarded by it, and I'd had this personal relationship to the crime, I attended one of the hearings, and I was able to sit in at which was a plea hearing, and that was a time when the parents and families of the victims could stand up to the judge and really uh, uh, plead, plead for the women who could not speak for themselves, for their mothers, for their sisters, for their aunts, for their cousins, and, you know, really communicate their loss and ask the judge to give this guy the maximum amount of punishment under the law. And I was literally sitting, you know, less than six feet from the serial killer. And this guy was 300 pounds, 6'4". And I mean, this guy was a, you know, a a piece of granite. He did not flinch. He did not respond to any of the, you know, the the heartbroken um, uh, pleadings of the families. I mean, that to me was something that said, I want to write a book. I want to be a voice for these women who can no longer speak for themselves. And that's what Ebony does. She becomes the voice of the women who can no longer speak for themselves.
2: Was there any sense, um, because of his um, apparent lack of remorse, or maybe just lack of emotion altogether, did you get some sense that that he was on a mission to to clean up the streets or something? Or... Was it something very different than that?
3: You know, I never got any sense of that at all. And in speaking with some of the district attorneys who were prosecuting the case and were in the room when he admitted these murders, he was very blase about it. I just think that he had no emotions. I think that, you know, he was a pure psychopath that just had no emotions whatsoever. Um, and, you know, insanity was never brought up in his particular case. I mean, he knew what he was doing, and he admitted killing these women. I mean, I don't, I don't think he had any mission.
2: And and at no point was he considered not competent to stand trial. Or no, no. Face the but. consequences. When you decided this was going to be a book, did you know right away how you would unfold the facts of the of the story, how you would tell the story?
3: Well, I had to do a lot of research, even though this was happening. This was happening around 2000. And, again, I started writing the book, I'm going to have to say, oh, uh, 20, you know, about five years ago. So... Um, In my mind, again, I had the basic story about these cold cases and these women from my doorstep, but um, I I like to um, outline everything. So that was my first step, doing the research, basically going through the archives, going through the court records, and that set the framework for how I was going to tell the story. This story unfolded very organically. Um, for me, you know, I knew Jesse was going to be in it. I knew I needed an officer who was going to be doing the investigation and who also had a personal stake in the investigation. It just wasn 't her job; she had an aunt who disappeared under very similar circumstances, so so we ha- I needed an officer who was on a mission personally and professionally, and then I wanted to bring Hal in because he 's developing his relationship with Jesse again. Um, it's a rekindled romance that has, uh, has some history to it. So I would say this story unfolded very organically for me.
2: You know, the fact that you're an attorney, does that impact how you might tell a story? Are you more or less likely to fill in details that maybe don't always get uncovered in these kinds of investigations?
3: Well, you know, it's like... Watch and Being an attorney, I always had a very difficult time watching, you know, Ally McBeal or, or uh, L.A. Law, <laughs> because I would sit there going, oh, my God, this is wrong. You know, how can they do this? So when I was writing my, my book. How, how
2: does Perry Mason so I, hold up for you?
3: Actually, he entertaining he's much better than the other ones to be honest with you
2: <laughs> although I have to admit to a certain amount of frustration where episode after episode somebody jumps up in the gallery and, <laughs> and, and admits to the crime and exonerates it, right? Mason's client
3: but, but as, as a lawyer I, I really feel a responsibility to to uh to accurately predict and ac- accurately depict um, crime and the criminal process. And I think that when readers read my book, they're getting a behind-the-scenes view of what goes on in the courtroom, what goes on in the law office, and also the different aspects of the crime. For example, this one has to do with um, some of it. Uh, we have the recurrence of Terrence Butterfield, who is the killer in the first book, he also makes an appearance. So we talk a little bit about the mental health aspects of being in, in, a, uh, in a mental health hospital. In this book, we also talk about um, what happens when there's an inequality in investigations. I mean, and that was brought to light with this Gabby Petito case recently, how she got a lot of attention because she was attractive, because, you know, she was an Instagrammer, and Ebony and I think all of my characters point a finger at the criminal justice system and say, look, there are other people out there who who demand and should be uh, investigated, and just because they're not pretty or just because they're not rich or just because they're not famous, they deserve attention, too. So there are social issues that I bring up in the book that I don't know if other people would if they weren't an attorney.
2: Now, these two cases, um, the one in um, the new book, uh, Hooker Avenue, and the one in in your previous book, The Midnight Call, um, these were reported widely in the media, but was it mostly local?
3: No, they made national news. I mean, both of the cases—if you picked up the New York Times—they uh, were they were covered. They were definitely covered. So people, you know, all over the United States might go, "Oh yeah, I remember hearing about that." Even though they are, they cast their their darkest shadow over Poughkeepsie and over the Hudson Valley. But they, they drew national attention.
2: Now, are you still regularly practicing law? Do you still go into the office every day, that kind of thing?
3: I, I I do I practice what's known as friends and family law. I keep my license so that if we get tickets or someone wants to buy a house or um you know, someone needs a will, uh, I'm here for them. But I I'm mostly writing. I mean I spend, you know, fifty percent of my time writing. Well I was
2: gonna I was gonna ask about that um because I talked to uh, a lot of writers and there's there's a real interesting t- time for writers when they go from writing in whatever time they can piece together to being able to write full time because they're making enough money to make ends meet or they've retired or, or something and uh... And, and you said you like to outline your your stories are you a real disciplined writer do you pick you know, a certain time of day, and and you sit down and you have objectives you're going to meet, and and you don't stop till you meet those objectives. How does how does that process work for you?
3: Well, I don't. I, I am very disciplined, and I think that comes from my legal training. Um, and I, I, mean, this is how I spend. I would say most of my afternoons, starting at noon till dinner time, sitting and writing, working at ideas and researching. I can't say that I set a goal that I'm going to do a chapter, um, or I'm going to do X number of words. A lot of a lot of writers do that. I'm going to write until I write 2,000 words. I don't work that way. I I I work until I get the idea out, and it starts preliminarily with getting the the initial idea for a chapter on the page, and then I'll go back and refine it and refine it and refine it. So, but I but discipline is definitely key. I mean, I, uh, I look forward to it every day, escaping to, as I put it, my imaginary friends.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, there was an interview with um, Stephen King. It, it wasn't me, unfortunately, but, um, <laughs> but he was asked if he wrote to a muse or to a schedule. And he said, oh, always to the muse. <laughs> Always to the <laughs> muse, but fortunately, the muse shows up every morning at nine o'clock.
3: <laughs> that's a good one. I that's I, I thought you one. would
2: appreciate that.
3: Um, <laughs>
2: but but again, that speaks to uh, the discipline of writing. Even binge writers will pick a time and then and then sit down, and that's what they're going to do for you know as long as it takes. Um, I'm I'm always a little fascinated by people who don't write to an outline and 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 it's almost as if the story writes itself. Right. I, I think right. those writers spend a lot more time editing.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> well, you know every every writer um reaches a point where the characters or hopefully they reach the point where the characters develop a life of their own. And I've had situations where I'm writing a scene and my in my mind, and according to the outline, it's going to go one way. But the characters say, no, I'm not going to turn right. I'm going to turn left. And that, you know, opens up the book, opens up the story. And that's when it really gets fun to write, when the characters kind of take off on their own and, and, and have a good time.
2: You know, for a lot of people... Jody, writing is a very solitary thing and I, I wonder do you enjoy the the um, the business and promotion part of it going to book signings and readings and interacting with uh, with people who who've maybe read the book and give you feedback do you enjoy that that kind of interaction
3: well by nature I'm a very outgoing person and Uh, You know, I mean, I'm used to being around people when you're an attorney around people all the time. So especially, it is so heartwarming to have people come up to me and say, I read your book, and to ask really pertinent questions like you're asking. You know, pertinent questions showing they've read the material and they want to know more, more about me, more about the characters. And I just really, I love that. I really I love the marketing as well as, and you know, I didn't, it took me a while to realize that when you write a book, you're not just writing a book. You know, you're, you're writing the first story, then there's the editing and the publishing, and then there's that third wonderful part, which is the marketing and the publicity and getting out and, and talking to wonderful interviewers like yourself, Tom. I mean, this is so much fun for me to be able to do this.
2: Well, I, I enjoy it, and, and I'm always fascinated by the creative process. And, and yours is a very different story, because very often I'm, I'm talking to, you know, writers who are coming up with these plot lines, you know, pretty much out of thin air, and not that there isn't mm. a lot of creativity that goes into your books, but in at least a couple of examples, these stories have really kind of presented themselves to you, which I find right. fascinating.
3: Well, you know, it's um, when I thought about writing, I knew that I, uh, as an attorney, I wanted to take my experience and write legal thrillers, and because I thought I had these stories to tell. And when I think about what I do, as compared to people who do science fiction, or uh, you know, urban fantasy, or or any of these other genres, I really am in awe of them because, as you say, they're coming up with stories out of thin air. I've done that, too. I mean, I keep a list of, of stories that maybe someday I would write. But for me, I'm just kind of drawn to what I'm doing. And maybe someday, I mean, when I first started out, I wrote a, um, a, uh, a young adult book that was like 135,000 words. And I came, I came up with that out of thin air. And that was much more difficult than what I'm doing now. You know, because I have much more structure because I know the story. I know the beginning. I know the end because of, of the nature of the crime and the actual true crime. But it's the, the fun is, as I said in the beginning, taking these crimes, inserting my characters in it and kind of letting them, you know, have a party and figure out where we're going to go with this.
2: You know, I always ask, um, I, I, I very often ask writers if they write, the story first and then cast characters like in a movie or if Mm -hmm. they have characters and then come up with stories of things that might happen to these people, various adventures. Mm -hmm. And, and this is very different for you, at least with these two books that we've been talking about um, because the, um, the crimes were already there. Right. You know, you know. But the who,
3: characters weren't, you know. Yeah, but the you know. The characters weren't. But
2: you know who done it before you sat down at the keyboard.
3: Right. Right. And,
2: and that, that's that's interesting to me, too, because then you've got to take a story that has actually happened and then retell it in a way that's fresh and original and, you know, takes us on that, that discovery that mystery. But you know, do.
3: these are these are not true retellings. Because that right. would be a base you know what I mean? That would be yeah. a based upon where you're actually doing something like in cold blood or um or midnight in the garden of good and evil. Yeah, I mean, there's a those difference are, between those are creative the, nonfiction. This is pure fiction with a with a you know, just a smidge of truth because they're inspired by a crime yeah I was going to so, say there's
2: a difference between based on and inspired by
3: right right and, and I'm uh, these are definitely inspired by I mean my characters and my villains are not um who really committed the crime these people are figments of my imagine create you know figments of my imagination so it, it is different it, well, it, it, it is different it's and that creates challenges too because, of course. for example, I can't change the killer.
2: Right, no? right. I'm boxed in. I can't believe how fast our time has gone, Jody. <laughs> we are just about out of time, and I want to make sure, as I do with all my guests, give you an opportunity to share with listeners where they might find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share?
3: Sure, uh, Tom. It's J-O-D-E, Millman.com, and um, on it I've got you know all of my uh, my book tour that's coming up, uh, media events, reviews. If people want to sign up for my newsletter, um, I it's, it's all there, you know. And it's information about Hooker Avenue. You'll learn more about me, more about the crime. Um, Everything you need to know is at com.
2: Well, Jody, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, and um, keep up the good work.
3: Thanks, Tom, and I hope to talk to you again in the future.
2: And we'll be talking arson.
3: That's right. Uh Arson and uh, arson's in drowning. (laughs)
2: Oh, that's right. Drowning comes first. Anyway, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back with more of the Tom Sumner program right after this. Tom
5: Sumner program. Right now, the COVID 19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone.
4: This vaccine means hope. It
8: will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease.
9: I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around.
5: To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium.
9: We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage.
5: In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated.
9: I'm getting vaccinated because we want
5: this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part.
9: This is our shot. Now it's up to you.
3: (laughs) Yo, speaking.
6: Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring
5: again.
4: Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
0: to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
6: The story of Little Blue Riding Hood is true. Only the colour has been changed to prevent an investigation.
9: This is the woods. My name is Wednesday. I work out a homicide. Monday, February the 2nd, 1022 AM. Bumped into chicken licking. Told me the sky was falling. I booked her on the 614, turned her over to the psychiatrist. Then a call came in at a 503. When I was on the way to the 503, a 618 came in. I added up the 614, the 503 and the 618. Got 1735. I handed in my paper to the chief. He corrected it. Gave me 100%, patted me on the head. Told me I was a good cop. 11.45 11.45 a.m., it happened. I saw a little girl in a blue hood carrying a basket. I stopped to question her. Pardon me, ma'am. Could I talk to you for just a minute, ma'am? What about? Nothing much, ma'am. Just want to ask you a few questions, ma'am. What's your name?
3: Little Blue Riding Hood.
9: Where are you going, ma'am?
3: Grandma's house.
9: Yes, ma'am. What do you got in the basket?
3: What are you trying to say? I got something in the basket I shouldn't have?
9: No, ma'am, I didn't say that.
3: Then why are you asking me all these questions for?
9: Just routine, ma'am. We just want to get the facts. May I have a look in that basket, ma'am?
3: Be my guest.
9: Let's see. sawed off shotgun? knife bludgeon box of dum-dum shells nothing suspicious here all right ma'am we may want to talk to you later so don't leave the woods she skipped on down the path but she didn't know i'd seen the concealed compartment in the basket in it what i'd suspected all along goodies my job get to grandma's before she did i took a shortcut to the strawberry patch was sort of a strawberry shortcut I walked up to the cottage, rang the bell.
3: Come in, dear.
9: Okay, Grandma, it's a raid. A
3: raid? Why, I'm just a peace-loving old lady. You've got the wrong Grandma.
9: Yes, ma'am. We just want to get the facts. Where'd you get that bump on your head?
3: The sky fell on me this morning.
9: I made a note to book her on the 614 and turned her over to the psychiatrist. I tied her up, put her in the closet, then I put on the Grandma's suit and got into bed. Come in, ma'am.
3: Hello, Grandma. I got the loot. What are you doing in bed?
9: I'm feeling poorly.
3: But, Grandma, what big ears you have.
9: All the better to get the facts. I just want to get the facts, ma'am.
3: But, Grandma, what a big subpoena you have in your pocket.
9: All the better to serve you with.
3: But, Grandma, what a big 38 police special you have pointed at me.
9: All the better to take you in. You're under arrest. You and your grandma are operating a goodies ring. A
3: cop? I should have known. Known what, ma'am? You look nothing like my grandma. You forgot about the mustache.
9: But I don't have a mustache.
3: I know. But Grandma does.
9: Well, I see you broke the goodies ring. How'd you get a lead on her, Joe? I just played a hunch, Frank. It was just a hunch. I played my luck. Sometimes the hunch pays off, sometimes it doesn't. I was just lucky. I just played a hunch, Frank. What you're trying to say, Joe, is you just played a hunch. A lucky guess. Sometimes a hunch pays off, sometimes it doesn't. You just played a hunch. Is that what you're trying to tell me, Joe? Yeah. I just played a hunch.
5: Another five-minute mystery. See if you can solve the case before the end of the program.
8: Well, Alice, one more block and you'll behold the Brooks household.
1: Two whole years, Jim. It just doesn't seem possible. It's been so long. You and Dorothy married and with a place of your own?
8: Ah, it's true, all right. Only too bad you haven't taken advantage of the old Brooks hospitality scene. Well, I'm here
1: now and I intend on having a perfectly wonderful time.
8: Now, here we are.
1: Oh. What a charming place this is.
8: Dorothy's probably on needles and pins waiting for me to get you here. Darling, it's Jim. Here's
1: Alice. <gasps> Jim, look.
8: What? Where?
1: There, on the living room floor. It's Dorothy, dead. Mr. Brooks, I'm
7: afraid you and Miss Manning will have to submit to some routine questions.
1: I'll be happy to help in any way I can, Inspector.
7: Thank you, Miss Manning. Now, Mr. Brooks, while we're waiting for some information I phoned for, I want you to tell me exactly what happened this morning.
8: Well, there's nothing much to tell. Both my wife and I were quite excited, expecting Alice, that is, Miss Miss Manning here, to visit us from Chicago. I was to wait until she called me at the office.
7: And you were there all morning?
1: Yes, until Miss Manning's train arrived and we came out here. I had written Mrs. Brooks to tell her that I would call Jim at the office as soon as I arrived. The train was an hour late. Maybe if I had been here earlier, it may have been prevented.
7: Hmm, well that remains to be seen. Apparently, Miss Brooks was sitting here in this chair putting red polish on her fingernails when she was shot from behind. The polish is spilled all over the carpet, and she was still holding the tiny brush in her hand. She must have recognized her attacker, and since she did not die instantly, she printed these three initials here on the floor with the polish, D-O-C. D-O-C?
8: I wish we could tell whose initials she was trying to reveal.
7: Yes, yeah, sure? You don't know anyone whose name would fit that? Positive. I can't.
1: Oh, oh.
7: Yes, Miss Manning, can you think of somebody with those initials?
1: Well, I, I... D-O-C spells Doc, and it's Mr. Brooks' nickname.
7: Why, it can't be.
8: Yes, Mr. Brooks. I haven't been called Doc in over two years. It was a nickname I picked up in school. My wife didn't like the name and never used it. No one in New York even knows me by Doc. I've, you've got to believe me, Inspector.
7: It's the truth. Hmm. Well, that we'll see. Just a minute. Hello? Yes, Grady. Yes. I see. Well, it's sewed up anyway. Thanks. Well, you both will be happy to know our little murder is solved.
1: Oh, then... then it wasn't Doc after all?
7: No, Miss Manning, it wasn't Doc. I'm arresting you, Miss Manning, for the murder of Dorothy Brooks.
5: Why did the inspector arrest Miss Manning for the murder of Mrs. Brooks? In a moment, we'll hear... And now, back to our story.
1: How dare you arrest me! I was still on the train!
7: Your train wasn't late, Miss Manning. That phone call just verified the fact... You came out here, murdered Miss Brooks, returned to the station, and called Mr. Brooks to pick you up. That wasn't what really gave you away, though, Miss Manning. Too bad you didn't know Mr. Brooks was no longer called Doc when you printed those letters on the carpet. The next time you leave a name as a clue to throw suspicion, you'd better get the name right. But of course, there won't be a next time, will there, Miss Manning?
5: Join us again next time for another chance to solve a five minute mystery. Don't you know? Come on! Come on, get out of here!